Chapter Twenty Five, Part Six of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Mackenzie. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Five. Louis the Eleventh, fourteen sixty one to fourteen eighty three, part six. Between the two rivals in France, relations with England were a subject of constant manoeuvring and strife. In spite of reverses on the continent and civil wars in their own island, the kings of England had not abandoned their claims to the crown of France. They were still in possession of Calais, and the memory of the battles of Crecy, Poitiers, and Agincourt were still a tower of strength to them. Between 1470 and 1472, the House of York had triumphed over the House of Lancaster, and Edward IV was undisputed king. In his views touching France, he found a natural ally in the Duke of Burgundy, and it was in concert with Charles that Edward was incessantly concocting and attempting plots and campaigns against Louis XI in fourteen seventy four he by a herald called upon louis to give up to him normandy and guienne else he told him he would cross over to france with his army tell your master answered louis coolly that i should not advise him to next year the herald returned to tell louis that the king of england on the point of embarking called upon him to give up to him the kingdom of france louis had a conversation with the herald your king said he is undertaking this war against his own grain at the solicitation of the duke of burgundy he would do much better to live in peace with me instead of devoting himself to allies who cannot but compromise him without doing him any service and he had three hundred golden crowns presented to the herald with a promise of considerably more if peace were made the herald thus won over promised in his turn to do all he could saying that he believed that his master would lend a willing ear but that before mentioning the subject they must wait until edward had crossed the sea and formed some idea of the difficulties in the way of his enterprise and he advised louis to establish communications with my lord howard and my lord stanley who had great influence with king edward whilst the king was parleying with the said herald there were many folks in the hall, says Comyn, who were waiting, and had great longing to know what the king was saying to him, and what countenance he would wear when he came from within. The king, when he had made an end, called me, and told me to keep the said herald talking, so that none might speak to him, and to have delivered unto him a piece of crimson velvet containing thirty ells. So did I, and the king was right joyous at that which he had got out of the said herald. It was now three years since Philippe de Comines had left the Duke of Burgundy's service to enter that of Louis XI. In 1471, Charles had, none knows why, rashly authorised an interview between Louis and de Comines. The king's speech, says the chronicler Molinet, in the Duke of Burgundy's service, was so sweet and full of virtue that it entranced, siren-like, all those who gave ear to it. Of all princes, says Comines himself, he was the one who was at most pains to gain over a man who was able to serve him and able to injure him, 
and he was not put out at being refused once by one whom he was working to gain over but continued thereat making him large promises and actually giving money and estate when he made acquaintances that were pleasing to him commines spoke according to his own experience louis from the moment of making his acquaintance had guessed his value and as early as fourteen sixty eight in the course of his disagreeable adventure at Perron, he had found the good offices of Comines of great service to him. It was probably from this very time that he applied himself assiduously to the task of gaining him over. Comines hesitated a long while, but Louis was even more perseveringly persistent than Comines was hesitating. The king backed up his handsome offers by substantial and present gifts in fourteen seventy one according to what appears he lent commines six thousand livres of tours which the duke of burgundy's counsellor lodged with a banker at tours the next year the king seeing that commines was still slow to decide bade one of his counsellors to go to tours in his name and seize at the bankers the six thousand livres entrusted to the latter by commines this says the learned editor of the last edition of commines memoirs was an able and decisive blow the effect of the seizure could not but be and indeed was to put commines in the awkward dilemma of seeing his practices as the saying was at that time divulged without reaping the fruit of them or of securing the advantages only by setting aside the scruples which held him back he chose the latter course which had become the safer and during the night between the seventh and eighth of august fourteen seventy two he left burgundy for ever the king was at that time at pont de Cé, and there his new servant joined him the very day of his departure at six a m duke charles had a seizure made of all the goods and all the rights belonging to the fugitive but what commines lost on one side said his editor he was about to recover a hundredfold on the other scarcely had he arrived at the court of louis the eleventh when he received at once the title of counsellor and chamberlain to the king soon afterwards a pension of six thousand livres of tours was secured to him by way of giving him wherewithal to honourably maintain his position he was put into the place of captain of the castle and keep of the town of chinon and lastly a present was made to him of the rich principality of talmont six months later in january fourteen seventy three commines married ellen de chambre daughter of the lord of montsoreux which brought him as dowry twenty seven thousand five hundred livres which brought him as dowry twenty seven thousand five hundred livres of tours which enabled him to purchase the castle town barony land and lordship of argenton arrondissement of bressuire the part département of deux sevres the title of which he thenceforward assumed half a page or so can hardly be thought too much space to devote in a history of france to the task of tracing to their origin the conduct and fortunes of one of the most eminent french politicians who after having taken a chief part in the affairs of their country and their epoch have dedicated themselves to the work of narrating them in a spirit of liberal and admirable comprehension both of persons and events but we will return to louis the eleventh the king of england readily entertained the overtures announced to him by his herald he had landed at calais on the twenty second of june fourteen seventy five with an army of from sixteen to eighteen thousand men thirsting for conquest and pillage in france and the duke of burgundy had promised to go and join him with a considerable force but 
The latter, after having appeared for a moment at Calais to concert measures with his ally, returned no more, and even hesitated about admitting the English into his towns of Artois and Picardy. Edward waited for him nearly two months at Peronne, but in vain. During this time, Louis continued his attempts at negotiation. He fixed his quarters at Amiens, and Edward came and encamped half a league from the town. The king sent to him, it is said, three hundred wagons laden with the best wines he could find. The witch train, says Comines, was almost an army as big as the English. At the entrance of the gate of Amiens, Louis had caused to be set out two large tables, laden with all sorts of good eatables and good wines, and at each of these two tables he had caused to be seated five or six men of good family, stout and fat, to make better sport for them who had a mind to drink. When the English went into the town, wherever they put up they had nothing to pay. There were nine or ten taverns well supplied, whither they went to eat and drink, and asked for what they pleased, and this lasted three or four days. An agreement was soon come to as to the terms of peace. King Edward bound himself to withdraw with his army to England so soon as Louis XI should have paid him seventy-five thousand crowns. Louis promised besides to pay annually to King Edward fifty thousand crowns in two payments during the time that both princes were alive. A truce for seven years was concluded. They made mutual promises to lend each other aid if they were attacked by their enemies or by their own subjects in rebellion, and Prince Charles, the eldest son of Louis XI, was to marry Elizabeth, Edward's daughter, when both should be of marriageable age. Lastly, Queen Margaret of Anjou, who had been a prisoner in England since the death of her husband, Henry VI, was to be set at liberty, and removed to France, on renouncing all claim to the crown of England. These conditions having been formulated, it was agreed that the two kings should meet and sign them at Pecuigny, on the Somme, three leagues from Amiens. Thither, accordingly, they repaired on the 29th of August, 1475. Edward, as he drew near, doffed his bonnet of black velvet, whereon was a large fleur-de-lis in jewels, and bowed down to within half a foot of the ground. Louis made an equally deep reverence, saying, "'Sir, my cousin, right welcome. There is no man in the world I could more desire to see than I do you, and praised be God that we are here assembled with such good intent.' The King of England answered this speech, "'In good French enough,' says Comines. The missile was brought. The two kings swore and signed four distinct treaties, and then they engaged in a long private conversation, after which Louis went away to Amiens and Edward to his army, with a Louis sent to him, all that he had need of, even to torches and candles. As he went chatting along the road with Comines, Louis told him that he had found the King of England so desirous of paying a visit to Paris that he had been anything but pleased. "'He is a right handsome king,' said he. "'He is very fond of women, and he might well meet at Paris some smitten one who would know how to make him such pretty speeches as to render him desirous of another visit. His predecessors were far too much in Normandy and Paris. His comradeship is worth noting on our side of the sea. On the other side over yonder, I should like very well to have him for good brother and good friend.' Throughout the whole course of the negotiation, Louis had shown pliancy and magnificence. He had laden Edward's chief courtiers with presents. Two thousand crowns by way of pension had been allowed to his grand chamberlain, Lord Hastings, who would not give an acknowledgment. 
the gift comes of the king your master's good pleasure and not at my request said he to louis steward if you would have me take it you shall slip it here inside my sleeve and have no letter or voucher beyond i do not wish to have people saying the grand chamberlain of england was the king of france's pensioner or to have my acknowledgments found in his exchequer chamber lord hastings had not always been so scrupulous for on the fifteenth of may fourteen seventy one he had received from the duke of burgundy a pension for which he had given an acknowledgment another englishman whose name is not given by Comines, waxed wroth at hearing some one say six hundred pipes of wine and a pension given you by the king soon sent you back to england that is certainly what everybody said answered the englishman that you might have the laugh against us but call you the money the king gives us pension why it is tribute and by st george you may perhaps talk so much about it as to bring us down upon you again there was nothing in the world says Comines, of which the king was more fearful than lest any word should escape him to make the english think that they were being derided at the same time that he was labouring to gain them over he was careful to humour their susceptibilities and Comines, under his schooling had learned to understand them well they are rather slow-goers says he but you must have a little patience with them and not lose your temper i fancy that to many it might appear that the king abased himself too much but the wise might well hold that the kingdom was in great danger save for the intervention of god who did dispose the king's mind to choose so wise a course and did greatly trouble that of the duke of burgundy our king knew well the nature of the king of england who was very fond of his ease and his pleasures when he had concluded these treaties with him he ordered that the money should be found with the greatest expedition and every one had to lend somewhat to help to supply it on the spot the king said that there was nothing in the world he would not do to thrust the king of england out of the realm save only that he would never consent that the english should have a bit of territory there and rather than suffer that he would put everything to jeopardy and risk Comines had good reason to say that the kingdom was in great peril the intentions of charles the rash tended to nothing short of bringing back the english into france in order to share it with them he made no concealment of it i am so fond of the kingdom said he that i would make six of it in france he was passionately eager for the title of king he had put out feelers for it in the direction of germany and the emperor frederick the third had promised it to him together with that of vicar-general of the empire on condition that his daughter mary of burgundy married duke maximilian frederick's son having been unsuccessful on the rhine charles turned once more towards the thames and made alliance with edward the fourth king of england with a view of renewing the english invasion of france flattering himself of course that he would profit by it to destroy the work of joan of arc and charles the seventh such was the design a criminal and a shameful one for a french prince which was checkmated by the peace of pequigny charles himself acknowledged as much when in his wrath at this treaty he said he had not sought to bring over the english into france for any need he had of them but to enable them to recover what belonged to them and louis the eleventh was a patriotic king when he declared that there was nothing in the world he would not do to thrust the king of england out of the realm and rather than suffer the english to have a bit of territory in france he would put everything to jeopardy and risk the duke of burgundy as soon as he found out that the king of france had under the name of truce made peace for seven years with the king of england and 
that Edward the Fourth had recrossed the Channel with his army, saw that his attempt so far were a failure. Accordingly, he too lost no time in signing, on the 13th of September, 1475, a truce with King Louis for nine years, and directing his ambition and aiming his blows against other quarters than western France. Two little states, his neighbours on the east, Lorraine and Switzerland, became the object and the theatre of his passion for war. Lorraine had at that time for its duke René II, of the house of Anjou through his mother Yolande, a young prince who was wavering, as so many others were, between France and Burgundy. Charles suddenly entered Lorraine, took possession of several castles, had the inhabitants who resisted hanged, besieged Nancy, which made a valiant defence, and ended by conquering the capital as well as the country places, leaving Duke René no asylum but the court of Louis XI, of whom the Lorraine prince had begged a support which Louis, after his custom, had promised without rendering it effectual. Charles did not stop there. He had already been more than once engaged in hostilities with his neighbours, the Swiss, and he now learned that they had just made a sanguinary raid upon the district of Vaux, the domain of a petty prince of the house of Savoy, and a devoted servant of the Duke of Burgundy. Scarcely two months after the capture of Nancy, Charles set out, on the 11th of June, 1476, to go and avenge his client, and wreak his haughty and turbulent humour upon these bold peasants of the Alps. In spite of the truce he had but lately concluded with Charles the Rash, the prudent Louis did not cease to keep an attentive watch upon him, and to reap advantage against him from the leisure secured to the King of France by his peace with the King of England and the Duke of Brittany. A late occurrence had still further strengthened his position. His brother Charles, who became Duke of Guienne in 1469, after the Treaty of Peronne, had died on the 24th of May, 1472. There were sinister rumours abroad touching his death. Louis was suspected, and even accused to the Duke of Brittany, an intimate friend of the deceased prince, of having poisoned his brother. He caused an inquiry to be instituted into the matter, but the inquiry itself was accused of being incomplete and inconclusive. King Louis did not, possibly, cause his brother's death, said Monsieur de Barante, but nobody thought him incapable of it. The will which Prince Charles had dictated a little before his death increased the horror inspired by such a suspicion. He manifested in it a feeling of affection and confidence towards the king, his brother. He requested him to treat his servants kindly, and if in any way, he added, we have ever offended our right dread and right well-beloved brother, we do beg him to be pleased to forgive us, since, for our part, if ever in any matter he hath offended us, we do affectionately pray the divine majesty to forgive him, and with good courage and good will do we on our part forgive him. The Duke of Guienne at the same time appointed the king executor of his will. If we acknowledge, however, that Louis was not incapable of such a crime, it must be admitted that there is no trustworthy proof of his guilt. At any rate, his brother's death had important results for him. Not only did it set him free from all fresh embarrassment in that direction, but it also restored to him the beautiful province of Guienne and many a royal client. He treated the friends of Prince Charles, whether they had or had not been heretofore his own, with marked attention. He re-established at Bordeaux the parliament he had removed to Poitiers. He pardoned the towns of Pazinas and Montignac for some late seditions, and lastly he took advantage of this incident to pacify and satisfy this portion of the kingdom. 
of the great feudal chieftains who, in 1464, had formed against him the League of the Common Wheel, the Duke of Burgundy was the only one left on the scene, and in a condition to put him in peril. End of chapter 25, part 6